from David in Psalm 15. O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. Father, this is a challenge to us because each day we live in a world that's drawing us in exactly the opposite direction, a society that has thrown away righteousness, thrown away integrity, and is filled with lies. And Lord, we need to, to swim against the current, to, to exhibit the nature of Christ by being people of integrity, people of righteousness, people of truth. And Lord, I pray that as we study your word, it will, it will build a stronger foundation each day in our lives, that we might stand strong for you, and that our lives will truly bear witness in this vile world of the truth of the God who is absolutely eternal and all-powerful. O Lord, we thank you for the word of God, which has been put into our hands, and may we rightly divide it as we study it this morning and each day. Father, bless as your word is being proclaimed throughout this campus uh, today and in this city and around the world. And we trust this will be a day in which thousands of men and women will become a part of the great kingdom of God. We thank you for your faithfulness in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you'll turn to the fourth chapter of Ruth, we are going to finish the book of Ruth today. Ruth chapter 4, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord, who has not left you without a Redeemer today, and may his name become famous in Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, and is better to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. And the neighbor women gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. So they named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations to, of Perez. To Perez was born Hezron. To Hezron was born, <clears throat> born Ram. To Ram, Amminadab. To Amminadab was born Nashon, to Nashon, Salmon, and to Salmon was born Boaz, and to Boaz, Obed, and to Obed was born Jesse, and to Jesse, David. In this passage of scripture that we've read, we see that the hopes and the dreams of Ruth are fulfilled in that Boaz has become their redeemer, and through them the redemption is perpetuated in the birth of this young boy. Obed. And you'll notice that the women who had, of course, empathized with Naomi, they were her compatriots, they were the ones that had uh, been her friends through the years, and, and they were the ones to whom she had said, don't, don't call me delightful anymore, call me bitter, because she came back without her sons and without her husband. And now they're overjoyed uh, about what is happening, and they say in verse 13, uh, which is wonderful, the praise that they give. The Lord enabled her to conceive. Well, that's what the passage says. And they say in verse 14, Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a Redeemer today. And so they are acknowledging that the birth of this baby is the gift of God. In verse 15, we further find that the women prayed that Boaz, or as some would interpret it, Obed, it's both in reality, would be a restorer of life and a sustainer 
of Naomi's old age. Then they stated that the prayer actually had already been fulfilled, been answered, because Ruth, and then they say, who loves you and is better to you than seven sons, has given birth to a son, and that child would in effect be the grandson of Naomi. Now, seven sons was not an arbitrary phrase. They didn't just say, oh, better to you than, uh, oh, well, I don't know, seven sons. No, seven sons, that particular phrase, was a term of ultimate blessing. If you had seven sons, you were ultimately blessed. It was, it was like the fullest possible blessing that you could receive in as far as the Hebrew concept of it was. And so they were paying Naomi and Ruth a compliment, a high compliment, by saying, she is better to you than seven sons. And so Naomi is the recipient, Ruth is the giver of this concept that the women are referring to. Concerning God's blessing upon Naomi and Ruth, uh, the great 19th century English Baptist preacher by the name of Charles Spurgeon gives this summary. Thus was Ruth's self-denying faith rewarded. She left behind both her relatives, country, and prospects to cast in her lot with the Lord's people. And the Lord not only blessed her, but blessed distant generations through her. Those who follow the Lord at all hazards shall be no losers in the long run. To increase Ruth's joy and crown her happiness, the Lord gave her a son, which son was also a joy to Naomi. Although this boy would carry none of Naomi's genes, genetically, this boy Obed is not related to Naomi. But he was her grandson, according to Israelite tradition and Israelite culture. And so now she could be secure in that thing that made her insecure in the fact that her husband was gone, her sons were gone, there would be no lineage to her. She was now secure in that because Obed would be her lineage. Israel would view her as the progenitor of this son, even though genetically that was not so. They didn't view it that way. The DNA was not important, as was the cultural view of the whole situation. And so the line of Elimelech will be perpetuated through her in Obed. Now, verse 16 is an interesting verse and can be misunderstood. It sounds like, because the verse says, then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. It sounds as if Naomi took over the job of mothering the child. However, what we have here apparently was a ceremony that went through here. The word for nurse is not the word used in scripture for wet nurse. Now, obviously, Naomi couldn't have been a wet nurse for this baby. The Hebrew word for nurse here is the word aman. And the theological word book of the Old Testament makes this statement about this particular word. It says, the basic root idea is firmness or certainty. It expresses the basic concept of support and is used in the sense of strong arms of a parent supporting a helpless child. So she is his nurse in the sense that physically she is holding the child, but emotionally, spiritually, psychologically, she will be the supporter of this child as he grows, and then he in turn, of course, will be her supporter in her old age. So it's a nurse in that sense and not in the other sense. Concerning this verse, verse 16 and, and verse 17, 
the commentator John R. Reed makes this statement. He says, this may have been a formal act of adoption, remembering she's not, he's not really related to her, so by taking him into her lap, she's in effect adopting him. The women of Bethlehem named the boy Obed, which means worshiper or servant. Naomi accepted the name. She, the empty one, was now full. The bitter one was now blessed. Naomi had a son, and in parentheses, Reed says, actually, a grandson, but a son in Hebrew often means simply descendant. Naomi undoubtedly lived with Ruth and Boaz. I think she moved in and was there to always be there to be with the boy and, and to minister to her daughter-in-law and now son-in-law. And she becomes like a second mother to Obed, and so there's this constant contact. Now, of course, in our society, that, that happens, but we don't think of it as very normal. But our society is very unusual in history, uh, where people go off and pair off in twos and, and separate totally from other members of the family and, and live over here and isolated, maybe in a different town, a different part of the country. In most societies, for most of history, extended families lived together. And you never had to pay for a babysitter because you always had lots of them. <laughs> aunts and uncles, or in certain cultures, aunts, and, you know, grandmothers and great-grandmothers and whatever else. There was never the problem that we have in our society today of paying three, four, five dollars an hour to have your children watch for, which makes a very expensive evening for someone. But this little boy, Obed, will literally become the joy of Naomi's life because she had thought all was lost and now it's all regained. The Lord talks about restoring the years that the canker has eaten, and that is literally what has happened here for Naomi. Now, Obed's name, which uh, means worshiper or servant, exemplifies in this name you have the idea of the attitude of Naomi and Ruth towards God. They were worshipers of God at least because of what he had done for them and the redemption that had come their way through Boaz. The name, although I think was also a statement of hope and a prayer on behalf of Naomi for this boy that he would truly grow up to be a worshiper and a servant of God. Now, most of you are familiar that if you go back to the end of the Old Testament, there's a whole series of small books called the Minor Prophets. And just about one of the shortest books in the whole Bible is one called Obadiah. Well, if you look at that name, uh, the first part of it is Obed. Same as this, worshiper, ayah, yah, Yahweh. It means worshiper of Yahweh, servant of Yahweh. And that's, of course, what Naomi was praying on behalf of Obed, that he would be an Obediah, ultimately, worshiper of Yahweh. Well, verses 18 to 22, the last, uh, what, four or five verses of the uh, passage are comprised, is comprised of a genealogy. Now, genealogies are not usually the most exciting parts of the scripture to read. Oh, yes, my reading today was in 1 Chronicles chapter 6, and I read, da, 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 begat, begat, begat. Mm, that was so inspiring. But actually, to the Hebrew, the genealogy says a great deal and means a whole lot uh, to them. It's meaning more and more to many of us today as we begin to look back into our genealogies and discover of course, always hoping to have been related to some great king or queen and probably discovering else otherwise, but nevertheless. What we have here is a genealogy of the tribe of Judah. And we, we discover it begins with Perez. 
Now, Judah was the fourth son of Leah through Jacob. Jacob, remember, had two wives, Rachel and Leah, and through Leah, she had a series of sons, six altogether. The fourth of those sons was Judah, okay? Judah was a, a man, and we have a whole chapter in, in Genesis about Judah, who uh, did some good things, and yet he did some rather unwise things. And one of the unwise things he, that he did was to marry a Canaanitess. Now, that was forbidden, but he married a Canaanitess, or would be ultimately forbidden when the law was given. And through this Canaanitess, he brought three sons into the world. One was named Ur, the other, second was Onan, and the third was named Shelah. He married his oldest son, Ur, to a Israelitess by the name of Tamar. And the scripture simply says that Ur was evil, so God took him, not to heaven. God just simply obliterated him, slew him is actually what it says. God slew him. So what Judah did then was to tell Onan, his second son, to become or perform the leveret function with Tamar. So he went to do so, but would not uh, fulfill the process because he didn't want to raise up a son to his brother. I guess he didn't like his brother too well. And uh, so God said, fine, zap, you're gone too. So Judah has one son left. Now he's much younger, and of course he's much younger than Tamar probably. And so Judah says to Tamar, well, he, when he grows up, I'll, I'll let you marry him. Well, he dilly-dallies around, procrastinates, probably because he thought, I don't want to give Sheila to Tamar. Uh, Tamar marrying my first two sons, they both died. And if I get, well, I have no sons left. So he decides ultimately he isn't going to do that. Well, you remember the story. Tamar got tired of waiting. And so one day she went out and, and dressed up like a harlot as Judah was passing and enticed him to come in and uh, he impregnated her, his own daughter-in-law. And she would give birth to twins, one of whom was Perez, the man who begins this list here. So Judah had a son whose name was Perez. And uh, Perez then becomes the further progenitor of this particular line that we see here that ends up with David. Humanly speaking, Perez lineage was not exactly sterling. Hezron. We don't know the meaning of the name Hezron, but he would be born to Perez, and to him would be born Ram. Now, Ram means high in the air. And to him would be born Aminadab. Aminadab means noble. Name your son noble. Very noble thing to do, isn't it? What is interesting about Aminadab was that he had a daughter whose name was Elishabah who married Aaron, Moses' brother. So obviously there's a, there's a good, uh, important connection there. And all of those persons up to that point spent their time with Israel in Egypt. So they lived in Egypt during that time of, of captivity. Nashan, whose the meaning of, what, of that name is uncertain also, was an extremely important leader during the Exodus. He was the leader of the tribe of Judah. And the tribe of Judah was the leading tribe during the Exodus. It was the tribe that always went first, and, and it guided the way under Moses' leadership, of course, but it was always on the forefront of the, on the cutting edge of, of the movement. And so here we have, Nashon is the chief elder of the chief tribe in the Exodus. So this is a big dude. This is a guy who's very important. He's probably, you know, next to Moses and Aaron and her and a couple of other guys, he's right up there in the top six of the leadership 
of Israel during the Exodus. His son is Salmon, and he also was with Israel when they left Egypt, but he apparently was fairly young, and we understand that because of this. You remember when Israel rebelled at Kadesh Barnea, God said, okay, then fine, you're not going in, and this whole generation from 20 years old and upward is going to die off in the wilderness, and I'll take the younger ones in. Well, Nashon does not go in. He is one, although he was the leader of the tribe through the Exodus, he was apparently one of those rebellious, rebellious guys, and so he died in the wilderness, but his son did not. How do we know that? Because he is the one who marries Rahab. So he was obviously involved in the conquest. So he must have been 19 years of age or younger at the time of the Kadesh Barnea incident. So we, we get a little bit of uh, timing in there on, on that particular man in terms of Salmon and then of Nashan also. Salmon was notable because he also married a Canaanitess, but in this case, it was a God-ordained marriage because being a Canaanitess being a Canaanite and, and not being allowed to marry in Israel was a spiritual thing, not a genetic thing. Because somebody was a Canaanite, you would not marry them as long as they were a pagan. But if they became born again, as we would say in, in New Testament terminology, if they were to become a proselyte of Jehovah, as Rahab obviously did, then all of that curse was removed and, and they had become spiritual Israel, so to speak. And, and so Salmon was able to marry Rahab and through her fathered Boaz. So Boaz was half Canaanite. And sometimes we don't think about that. Boaz was half Canaanite and the son of a reformed harlot. Not terribly good credentials. But his personality, his character, demonstrated within his own community of, of Bethlehem that he was a man of valor and honor. And so he was one of the most esteemed persons in his own city in spite of uh, that particular background. What about Obed? Well, if Obed's father was Boaz, who was half Canaanite, that meant that Obed was one quarter Canaanite. His mother was Moabite, so he was half Moabite. So left only one quarter Israelite. <laughs> and yet he is the ancestor to great King David. Again, what, what this teaches us is that God is concerned with the heart. It's where the heart is. Where somebody stands in society, the color of their skin, their genetic makeup is irrelevant if the heart is right before God. Obed, of course, would father Jesse, and Jesse would father the great King David. And nobody except maybe Moses is more highly honored in Hebrew history than David. 1,000 years after David, Jesus the Messiah, would be born to whom? An impoverished, distant descendant of David by the name of Mary. And because of that, Jesus would be called the son, meaning the descendant of David. And what is interesting about that is we find that he is proclaimed that by both Jew and Gentile. Let me read in Matthew chapter 15. In Matthew 15, verse 21, Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. Now, in case you've forgotten your geography, Tyre and Sidon are Phoenician cities. They are located in what is today the country of Lebanon. And the people who lived there were Phoenicians, and they were 
ethnically, or I should say at least culturally related to the Canaanites. And so Jesus withdrew to that district. So we have to understand that when Jesus was on this earth preaching, he actually preached outside of physical Israel. He, teach, he actually taught in a Gentile country. And then verse 22, Behold, a Canaanite woman came out from that region and began to cry out and saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. So here's this Canaanitess living in Phoenicia who is calling Jesus the son of David. And then if you uh, look in the 21st chapter of Matthew in verse 9, we read the, the words of the multitude as Jesus was entering Jerusalem in his so-called triumphal entry. The multitude went before him and those who followed after were crying out saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So Jesus was acknowledged as the son of David by his own people as well as by Gentiles also. Think about Jesus now. Jesus has a less than enviable human pedigree. In this, he demonstrated that he came to redeem both Jew and Gentile, both harlot and king. In fact, it was Jesus' low birth that made him credible to the poor and the outcast of society. And suspect, of course, to the rich and the famous. That's one of the problems that hurt the early church. When Christianity began to spread in the Mediterranean world, it spread most rapidly amongst the poor, the downtrodden, the slave element of society. And as they accepted this, this hope that if in this life it's going to be awful, at least we have a, a hope of an afterlife that will be blessed, the rich and the famous said, well, if all the slaves believe in this Jesus, we can't believe in him. He's got to be somebody that we couldn't possibly associate with. And uh, in many ways, Jesus' low birth and appeal to the masses uh, turned off the rich and the famous. And of course, the scripture does say that it's more difficult for a rich man to get into heaven than a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And it's not because having money just simply keeps you out of heaven. It just makes you sense the fact that you don't need God, think that you don't need God. Jesus' distant connection to David allowed him to be called the son of David, while his position as the second person of the triune Godhead allowed him to be called the son of God. Son of David, son of God. This union of the lowest and the highest made redemption possible. Now you look at the religions of the world and see if you can find anything as incredible as that. Well, you'll find some pretty incredible things as you read the Quran and, and uh, the Rig Veda or you know, Bhagavad Gita or any of the other supposed holy writings. It's pretty incredible what's in there. Uh, but in the sense of, of what man would never conceive of as being the truth makes it, of course, true. Little did Ruth know when she committed herself to Naomi and to Naomi's God, that she would become part of the earthly royal line of Israel and also the heavenly royal line of Messiah, the Redeemer of all mankind. Can you think about that? 
It was only by the grace of God that this totally obscure pagan teenager from the plateau of Moab, somebody in Israel would say, what good thing can come out of Moab? Just as they said of Jesus out of Nazareth that she could play such an important role in God's plan of salvation is only something God could have made possible. And this teaches us something I think that is extremely important, and that is that no one is ignored or considered unimportant by God. We, as humans, rank people. <laughs> and as a result, you know, even in the scripture, it tells us that when the person comes in who looks rich and famous and you put him in this, this place of honor and then the poor guy comes in, you stick him way down in a corner. Are, are you not just like the world? We're not to do that. We're not to treat the wealthy and the powerful with, with, greatest, you know, with great honor and, 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 and just treat the poor as if they don't count because God is the opposite. God re retreats the poor as if they're the honored because the first shall be last and the last shall be first. God seeks to redeem all people, whether they are viewed by themselves or by others as important or unimportant, as valuable or worthless. In fact, of course, as you look through the pages of Scripture, you'll discover that God clearly cares immensely for those which are considered by the world to be unimportant and worthless. I mean, how many people could be any lower than Mary Magdalene was? And as you go through the pages of Scripture, you see this keeps leaping off the pages. The poor, the downtrodden, the leper is ministered to by God. For us who have been redeemed by Israel's Messiah and Goel, we have a wonderful promise and statement made concerning us in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, where we read, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We're called for a purpose. Ruth was called for a purpose. Boaz was called for a purpose. Naomi was called for a purpose. And that purpose may seem very distant to us way back there 3,000 years ago. But that purpose is fulfilled through the centuries in the coming of Messiah. And of course, Israel's Messiah is our Messiah. One of the most important truths found throughout the book of Ruth is that no matter how dark the circumstances may be, or bleak our future may seem, we have an obligation to live responsibly according to the Word of God. Simply because our circumstances are bad and our future looks awful doesn't mean we just throw the whole thing over and say, I'm just going to sit here and moan and groan and ignore the Scripture and, and you know, not worry about being obedient. We're to trust Him. Because even in those dark circumstances and in those difficult hours, God is preparing to do something more wonderful than you can even possibly conceive. And he's going to do it in us, he's going to do it to us, and he's going to do it through us. And this is what he did for Naomi, and this is what he did for Ruth. It's hard for you and for me reading this, this book here to put ourselves back in Israel 3,200 years ago and, and to think what it must have been like for this woman to come back absolutely bereft of everybody except a, a, a foreign daughter-in-law 
and for this daughter-in-law to leave everything and come to this strange land and, and live here uh, and, and to honor a God she'd never known before. And to be faithful in that and to see what God would do. Miraculous what God would do through them. And of course, what this illustrates or, or emphasizes is the words which we read in the first chapter of James, for every good and perfect gift is from above. It comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variableness or shadow of turning. God loves to give good gifts, and he gives good gifts to his people. And sometimes, of course, the good gift doesn't look so good when we first get it, but it works out through time as we're faithful for our good and for the good of his kingdom. As we noted back at the beginning of this of our study, the story of Ruth, set as it was in the midst of a protracted time of political and spiritual anarchy in, in Israel, helps us to see that no matter what the appearances may be, God is at work. God is at work. No matter what it looks like, God is at work. Most of you know the story. Several hundred years later, when Ahab was king in Israel, and Israel was at another spiritual low point. I mean, after all, Ahab was a wicked king, and he'd married this, this woman, Jezebel, who was a Phoenician pagan. She was not a convert to, uh, to, his, to, to the worship of Jehovah. Uh, he violated the very laws of God in marrying a pagan and making her queen in the land. The prophet Elijah, you remember, had his Mount Carmel experience, which was wonderful, and then he came down and she wrote him a letter saying, you're a dead man. And he was so burnt out by all that happened that he took off running into the wilderness. And we know the story. And uh, the Lord confronted Elijah out there. When he got to Mount Horeb, God said, what you doing here, <laughs> Elijah? Now, of course, whenever God asks a question like that, we all know God is not uninformed. He doesn't want information. <laughs> he wants us to tell, admit what we're doing. It's for our good. So he says to Elijah, what are you doing out here, Elijah? And Elijah said, the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left, and they seek my life. I mean, that's the pits. God's response to Elijah was, you're not alone, Elijah in serving the Lord. You don't know it. But there are 7,000 in Israel who have not bowed the knee to Baal. They didn't have email in those days. So <laughs> he wasn't able to understand that he was part of a network of individuals. He thought he was alone. Because when he stood on the top of Mount Carmel, I mean, we have to understand this in perspective. When he stood on the top of Mount Carmel, he was alone. One guy against 400 prophets of Baal and 450 uh, prophets of Ashtart, and he alone cried out up there. And Israel stood around and said, well, we'll just see what comes of this. They weren't on his side until, of course, God answered with fire. And Elijah told him, get off the fence, you nitwits, and, you know, if God is God, join him. If, if Baal's God, join him. Don't stand halfway in between. This guy was, um, had a kind of uh, insecure feeling here about this whole situation. Well, I believe that this passage concerning Elijah in the wilderness 
and his, his encounter with God. And other biblical passages demonstrate that no matter how bleak times may seem, especially spiritually bleak, I mean, they can be bleak other ways, like go back to the Depression. The Depression was a time when things were bleak economically and, and some other ways, but th there was, there was a quite a bit of spiritual revival during the Depression because, you know, if you lose everything, suddenly God becomes important. But we're talking about uh, times, I'm talking about times where it was spiritually bleak, like the period of the book of Judges and, and throughout the nation of Israel's history from, from the days of Jeroboam on down where they always had wicked kings. It was pretty bleak. And yet in all of that, God always has his remnant. For example, in the darkest hours of the Middle Ages, when as far as anybody knew, almost everybody from the Pope on down who was in a high church position was on the take. They were greedy. They, they wanted the things of this world. They were not living for God. Even in those dark hours, there, were, there was a remnant. There were a peasant here. There was a peasant here, a peasant there. There was a nun here, a monk there. In the convent, in, in the monastery, somewhere God still had his remnant. And sometimes we read the writings of that remnant. You know, the writing of Saint this or Saint that. Of course, the church has sanctified the persons, but you read their writings and you can see they were in communion with God. And yet they were in communion with God at a time when it was dark, spiritually dark. Oh, they call it the age of faith. Huh. Wasn't much faith during the age of faith in the bulk of people. I call this principle the 7,000 principle. I'm just, you know, I can't support this from Scripture and say there always are 7,000, but I believe we can support the idea there always is a remnant. The remnant may be very small. You go back to the Genesis chapter 6 and you discover the remnant was very small. There were just eight people. And only one of them does the Scripture say that, you know, God imputed righteousness to him, and that was Noah. And God obliterated the entire rest of the world. Well, that's a pretty small remnant. And as you go through time, the remnant, I think, varies in size from time to time and from place to place. And I think today, probably God has the largest remnant ever in history in terms of the number of people who actually believe in Jesus Christ. Now, I can't argue whether percentage-wise that's true, but at least in terms of mass numbers, because the world today has 6.1 billion people living in it. And if you were to go around through the 200 some odd countries in the world today, I think there will not be a single country in the world in which there are not some who name the name of Jesus. And in some countries, there are millions. In China today, is po China probably has the largest number of true believers of any country in the world today. Not percentage, largest number. The number of Christians today is in the tens of millions, certainly probably even in the hundreds of millions. That's a pretty large remnant. But even with the number that exists in this country today, look how dark it's getting here today in America. It's coming in from all directions. But God has always maintained his remnant. So as it was in the dark days of Naomi, of Ruth, and of Boaz, so it always has been, and so it always will be. God is never left without a witness. 
And I think, if nothing else, that is one of the strong messages that comes out of the book of Ruth. Next Sunday, I would like to begin looking at the life of Samuel, Nabi Samuel, the prophet Samuel. Samuel is a very interesting person because Samuel was not only a prophet, he was a judge in Israel. And although his birth was unusual and his adoption was unusual, uh, God used him in a mighty way. And, and a man who would uh, be the anointer of kings in Israel and would have the joy of even anointing God's greatest king, David. So he is the transition man. It is through Samuel that we make the transition from the judges to the monarchy. And, and when God, working through this man, Samuel, moves from a time when he proclaimed that Israel will be ruled by the Lord, he had proclaimed a theocracy to exist, to where he, God allows Israel to have a monarchy and teaches them a lesson, of course, through the first monarch, uh, Saul, that uh, monarchy might not be all that wonderful. And then, of course, gives them the greatest of all their kings in David. Uh, David was a man who created Israel's greatest hour. In all of the history of Israel, from the birth of Jacob, uh, who became Israel, to this very day, the most glorious hour in the history of that nation was the reign of King David. Because he loved the Lord and because he conquered a vast empire, which he turned over then to Solomon, who continued it, but decline began to set in even in the days of Solomon because Solomon disobeyed the Lord and his heart was turned away from God. And as a result, Israel would become divided upon his death, uh, never really to be restored to anything near the grandeur that it had during the days of David and the early reign of Solomon. So Samuel lives at a very uh, critical hour of history and was God's great man to bring about this transition. I think that if you were to we were to rank the greatness of the men in Scripture and men and women in Scripture, which of course I don't think we can do because God views differently than we, uh, Samuel would be right there near the top, right up there near the top. So we'll begin looking at his life uh, next Sunday.